0: Case 20-6380, Scott Harden versus ATF et al., oral argument 15 minutes per side. Mr. Harden for the appellant.
1: Good morning. Uh, May it please the court. Uh, My name is Jason T. Harden, and I'm here today on behalf of the appellant, Scott A. Harden. Uh, This
2: case is pretty straightforward. Is there some relationship there?
1: Actually, it is. He is my cousin. Uh, I'm the only lawyer in the family, and he's the only doctor in the family, so it kind of makes for some interesting family reunions.
2: (laughs) Very good.
1: (laughs) At least I'm not asked to give physical examinations at Christmas Eve, so I'm grateful for that. (laughs) Um, Well, this case is pretty straightforward, Your Honors. uh, At issue are bump stocks, and uh, more specific, uh, whether a bump stock is a machine gun as defined by federal law, My client lawfully purchased such bump stocks, and at the time of said purchase, in accordance with the long-held position of the Department of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, bump stocks were not machine guns as defined by federal law. Now, this position of the ATF remained consistent from around 2006 all the way to 2017. Now, I believe that encompasses, I believe, five ATF directors, two FATD chiefs, and even four U.S. attorneys general. Now, of course, as we know, in 2018, uh, there was the mass shooting in Las Vegas, uh, followed by public outcries and political pressures to do something. Uh, That's when the ATF reversed course and through a rule change, reclassified bump stocks as machine guns. The result, uh, citizens at the time of the ATF's rule change, owning a bump stock, were exposed to a decade in federal prison, though for a decade earlier, the federal government did not believe that such should be the case. And I think that was best stated by Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch in his statement in the denial of petition for writ of cert in the Getty's case. So not wanting to become a felon overnight and potentially lose his medical license and thus his livelihood, uh, my client destroyed his bump stocks. Now, with the briefs pretty much speaking for themselves, I would just like to kind of highlight and focus on four points today in support of my client's position. First, the definition of machine gun. Unchanged for decades is contained in 26 USC, Section 5845B, and provides essentially that a machine gun is a weapon that can fire more than one shot automatically by a single function of the trigger. We believe that that definition is clear and unambiguous. Consequently, uh, we believe the government's interpretation is inconsistent with that statutory definition. So the ATF lacked authority when it issued its final rule. How can you
2: justify it being unambiguous when so many judges that you're aware of, I'm sure, say it is ambiguous?
1: Well, I think when you look at what uh, the definition of the machine gun and the two main points, of course, is it talks about the uh, being the single uh, function of the trigger and whether it is automatic. Now, I'll be perfectly honest with you, being a non-firearmed expert, I I didn't even know what a bump stock was before this case. I found a lot of guidance reviewing the gun owner's case, the uh, three panel decision of a gun owner's case in this circuit, as well as the recent Cargill case. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, when you're looking at the mechanics of a semi-automatic weapon, uh, you have to pull that trigger or depress that trigger, if you will, and you only get one bullet per the depression of that trigger. Uh, to uh, to, uh, be deemed a automatic weapon when you depress that trigger, uh, it will continue to fire shots. And I think that when you follow that definition, uh, like I said, set out in Cargill and the earlier gun owner's case, where they break down what does single function of the trigger mean and what does automatic mean, I I think it is pretty clear. Uh, A function means exactly that. It's an act. When you press that uh, trigger on the gun, you are now activating the firing mechanism. Uh, that is that is just one function. And you have to keep, uh, again, as I said, pushing that trigger in the case of bump firing, have that firearm bumping up against, uh, bumping that trigger up against your finger to allow for shots to be fired. But it's always one pull of the trigger, one shot, different from an automatic, that it'll continue to fire rounds until you either take your finger off the trigger or you run out of ammunition, whichever uh, begins first.
2: Let me read you three sentences from Judge Ho's opinion in Cargill. He says, what does single function of the trigger mean? If it's meant, if it means that there is a single action on the trigger from the shooter's perspective, then this language might well apply to bump stocks. That's because a single action on the trigger by the shooter is enough to spray multiple bullets.
1: Well, and I, I think though what that decision also pointed out is if you take this role where you are redefining function to be this uh, to the pull of the trigger, you start to take the statute from a, a gun-centric statute, or at least this component of the statute, to a shooter-specific. And I think nowhere in the statute, at least where it uh, defines the machine gun is does it rely on what the shooter does? Because uh, you know it is important to point out that uh, the bump firing can be replicated by an experienced shooter without the actual device. So that's a slippery slope because you could have a very well-trained shooter with a semi-automatic weapon without a bump stock device, but just through his own skills, coordination, muscular abilities, to bump fire, does that convert then the semi-automatic to a machine gun just because of what the shooter is doing? And I, I think that would be incorrect. And I think they point that out well in the Cargill case.
0: Counsel, um, I, I, it's understandable. Both you and your opposing counsel have argued that um, the plain meaning of the statute supports your position. But as Judge Gilman's pointed out, we've had a, a wide uh, uh, or a sharp divergence in the in the authorities. Uh, on that interpretation issue so let's just assume for the purposes of the argument that the statute is ambiguous so what do we do now um uh, I, I, we're, we're, do, you, do you do you still win
1: uh, yes I, I believe so because and in, and in, in as you've aptly pointed out there has been uh multiple decisions whether it's in courts of appeals the district courts uh some of these courts have applied the chevron deference and so forth I think the crux of this is that if you assume ambiguity for argument's sake, that this statute has uh, the component of criminal sanctions, and because of those criminal sanctions, then the doctrine of lenity applies and would abrogate uh, any analysis under Chevron. Uh, when criminals...
0: With the Babbitt case, um, which seemed to not apply the rule of lenity in the context of an administrative uh, regulation, that criminalized behavior
1: well the, the Babbitt case is interesting is as, as I understand that that involved the uh, uh, the endangered species uh, thing and you know it, it's sort of an aberration and what I would do is I would just simply rely on I think it was uh Justice Scalia in the Whitman versus United States case and talking about Babbitt and I will quote from him the best that one can say is that in Babbitt, uh, the court deferred with scarcely any explanation to an agency's interpretation of a law that carried criminal penalties. And he goes on to state, which I think is very important, Babbitt's drive-by ruling in short deserves little weight. Uh, but when you really dissect Babbitt, it doesn't actually apply uh, the Chevron doctrine or lenity. It, it talks about deference, but doesn't go that far. So again, uh, if it's good enough for Justice Scalia, it's good enough for me to say that that case should be given little weight in uh, connection with what we have here.
2: Well do you think a Chevron deference should apply or should not apply here?
1: It should not apply. And I think what's important in this case both we and the government has expressly stated that it does not apply. In fact in the in support of the government's motion for judgment in the district court case, and I'm quoting, they specifically say deference to the agency is not required to resolve this case. So with the government taking that position, they have waived uh, that argument. So you think the rule of lenity
2: should apply here?
1: If you assume ambiguity, yes, because, again, there are criminal sanctions and, you know, there are no holdings that I'm aware of by the Supreme Court or any case in this circuit that has applied Chevron deference to criminal statutes.
2: Is there any case you can cite that says you cannot apply Chevron deference in criminal cases?
1: Uh, I believe that we can look at uh, United States versus April. Um, and I'm quoting, it says the Supreme Court has never held that the government's reading of a criminal statute is entitled to any deference. Um, we can also look at Gutierrez, Bruzella versus Lynch as well. That was a 10th Circuit case, but I think the uh, Supreme Court case in U.S. versus April is apropos.
0: Uh, let me ask you about your, uh, just briefly, your other claims. Uh, do they go away if we rule in your favor on the, as far as the uh, uh, the rule being uh, invalid?
1: Uh, it, it, obviously, we're talking about our arts under the revenue code and so forth. Uh, yeah. I'll be the first to admit, Ron, these are secondary and even tertiary arguments. Uh, being from Kentucky, I can tell you not all horses in the stable run really fast and probably will get scratched before they get to the uh, starting gate. Uh, But, yeah, I don't think you would even have to get there. I think if you uh, first analyze the the statutes, plain reading and find, as we do, that there's no ambiguity, the analysis stops there, of course, that it's not bump stocks or not machine guns. If you find ambiguity and that takes you to this um, analysis, does Chevron deference apply or not? Obviously, it does not, as we just argued, that lenity would apply there. So you probably don't get to our secondary and tertiary uh, claims, Your Honor.
0: What about Skidmore deference? Why doesn't that apply here?
1: Um, I'm not as familiar on that, Your Honor. Um,
0: it was referenced in Ju- Judge White's opinion um, with respect to the Anbach and um, gun owners.
1: Well, with that, of course, as I understand that, that that was a uh, a split decision there. Um, And so I don't know if that uh, moves the needle at all. Um, I I think that uh, the, the case still is going to turn on the arguments of lenity that we've already made. Do you
0: have any additional arguments?
1: Uh, I, I believe we've covered everything, Your Honor. I mean, again, like I said, we, we believe that the um, uh, the definition is clear and unambiguous. But again, if you um, if you find ambiguity, we have to rely on the doctrine of lenity because of the, the criminal sanctions. And if I could just make one final point as well. Um, I can't overemphasize the importance, I think, of this court ruling on this matter. Again, I know there's multiple cases in multiple circuits that involve the ATS role in this bump stock issue. Uh, there's been multiple preliminary injunctive motions that have been filed, all of which, as I recall, have been ultimately denied. Uh, divided panels have found ambiguity and invoked the Chevron deference uh, with the cargo case recently in the Fifth Circuit being an exception to that. But as far as I know, this is the only case where there has been an adjudication on the merits. uh, And the district court applied the Chevron deference doctrine. Uh, So, because of the district court's reliance on Chevron in this case, and Chevron being an issue that extends beyond merely the confines of this specific ATF ruling, and in fact, extending into the ever growing expanse of administrative authority, I think a ruling in this case would be very important to advance this issue despite what subsequent proceedings are, are sought either in Cargill or in the Gun Owners of America case in this circuit. Okay. Uh, I have your honor. If I may thank
3: reserve of any time. Thank you.
0: Thank you, counsel. Mr. Henshawood.
3: Yes, your honor. Good, good morning. Brent Hinchwood from the government. Uh, obviously, this court is, is, I think, at this point, fairly well familiar with these issues. I, I, I wanted to just go back to something that uh, my colleague, again, with sort of talking about the statutory definition here uh, and how it applies to these particular devices. Before, before you
0: get into that, counsel, let me just court. ask an overall question. Does the government have to, to win on the, um, uh, that it is not ambiguous, given that you're not relying on Chevron, apparently? I mean, is does your case rise and fall on your view of the statute being adopted by
3: us? No, look, we certainly think that the court should adopt our reading as at a minimum the best reading of the statute, even if there's you know some degree of doubt, you know you can still apply the usual tools of statutory interpretation to figure out the you know the best reading of the statute, and that's what the agency tried to do in its rule here, and we hope that the court will of course read the rule and and give the analysis there you know some respect. Does in the course, does the
0: court. government lose if the statute is, statute is ambiguous? Uh, you
3: know, I I don't think if the court finds that the statute is ambiguous. I I think there's a few different questions sort of baked in there, and I want to make sure we tease them apart. One is this question. What what do we do if we find the statute is ambiguous? Right. So, you know, I, I think, again, even if there's some degree of ambiguity, it's still possible to arrive at a best or correct reading of the statute. I think that's what the D.C. Circuit just did in its final judgment decision. I understand
0: that, but I'm asking the question, if we find the statute is ambiguous,
3: does the government lose? So uh, I take it your question is going more toward a situation where the rule of lenity might apply and you might be driving toward something like that. So, I mean, what the Supreme Court has said about that situation is that where there's a grievous ambiguity, right, a a particularly, you know, uh, challenging ambiguity, one where the court is just left to guess at what Congress intended. I mean, these are lines from Supreme Court opinions discussing the rule of lenity, that in that circumstance, the rule of lenity would, you know, you know, is, is where lenity plays a role. And we simply don't think any ambiguity here would rise to that level. And, you know, I don't think that, um,
0: you so know, you're not answering my question, counsel. Um,
3: are you saying if,
0: if the statute is ambiguous, the government loses, what, no, what, what do you offer to say why this government would still win if the statute is ambiguous?
3: Yeah. You know, if, if the statute is, is sort of truly ambiguous and the court is left to guess, then, then you, you might, Look to the rule of lenity for guidance. Of course, this court would also then consider, I think, the question of whether Chevron deference applies, and that's what other courts have, have so considered. Are arguing that yes. Chevron deference applies if the we, statute is ambiguous? Your, Your Honor, we haven't invoked Chevron deference here, but of course, as
0: I think well, it I'm asking us, you whether you would today, uh, if we find the statute is ambiguous, do you
3: invoke Chevron
0: immunity or Your Honor, Chevron
3: deference? Chevron is ultimately a question for the court. Whether the Chevron applies is a question for the court. There are cases where we ask for it and the court makes a decision, sometimes doesn't give it to us or sometimes does. But ultimately it's a question for this court whether to grant Chevron deference or not in a particular case. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say the government ought to lose. uh, But, you know, certainly we don't think Chevron deference is necessary to resolve this case. And we haven't invoked it in this litigation, you know, precisely for that reason. And, you know, we've asked the court to, to focus on the statutory definition in the text here and to, you know, make a judgment on that basis. Now, you know, I, I think what's useful to focus on within that statutory discussion is, you know, not only the statutory terms themselves, single function of the trigger and automatically, but how those terms, you know, relate to each other, right? So my, my colleagues started by saying, well, a different function of the trigger happens every time the trigger moves, essentially right? Every time the trigger moves. And I think it's useful to recognize, I mean, that's inconsistent with the definition ATF has adopted for well over a decade at this point. I mean, if you look at devices like the Aikens accelerator, which operated exactly the same way with respect to the trigger and the 11th circuit held that that was a machine gun, you know, the trigger moved for every shot that was fired with the Aikens accelerator.
0: The ATF ATF has had an inconsistent, um, Record here. True, it found that Atkins Accelerator was a machine gun, but it also found that non-mechanical bump stocks were not. Right. Bounced back and forth through the years. Uh, Right. So, isn't that evidence that this statute is ambiguous? If the
3: the agency itself can't make up its mind as to what the meaning is? No, Your Honor. I think it's important to think to focus on exactly what error ATF made after two thousand six, after it classified the Atkins Accelerator. So again, to be clear. The definition of single function of the trigger that appears in the rule here and is applied to these devices is exactly the same as the one applied to the Atkins accelerator. It was announced in 2006 as part of the Atkins accelerator ruling and has been the agency's position for 17 the, at 17 years.
0: Didn't the agency distinguish the Atkins accelerator from the non-mechanical bump stocks? with The, the non-mechanical bump stocks did not have a spring as part mm-hmm. of the
3: apparatus. It wasn't that the distinction ATF made. Precisely, Your Honor. So the agency thought that the term automatically required the presence of a spring or mechanical parts. And I just want to point out, no one thinks, not my colleague, not any of the other courts that have, or judges that have, you know, voted against ATF's position. No one has has argued that's the correct definition of the term automatically or the correct way the statute ought to be read as hinging on the presence of a spring or mechanical parts. So, I mean, ATF plainly made a mistake. In its interpretation of that term at that time, and you know, in the course of the rule here, went back to correct that mistake. And, and I think it's worth bearing in mind nobody has has pressed the argument that ATF's prior definition of automatically was in fact correct. Um, you know, instead, ATF looked to you know dictionary definitions that apply, You know, uh, of that term at the time it was enacted in 1934, and that other courts like the Seventh Circuit and Oliphant relied on to you know, establish you know, in, in their own rulings and looked at those definitions, and said, well, you know, the term looks to whether there's, you know, a self-acting or self-regulating mechanism, or to use another definition, something that's self, you know, regulating under conditions fixed for it. And sort of looked at that and said, okay, that's the definition we ought to be applying here. And then we can look at bump stocks and see, you know, if they fit that definition.
0: Is, is this kind of an unusual, I mean, it seems unusual to me for an agency to change its interpretation of What's criminal or not under a statute? Has this ever occurred before to your knowledge for any federal agency to change its view of whether
3: something is criminal or not under a statute? We're, I mean I'm, I'm sure there are situations that, that arise where you know there's a question about particular conduct that hasn't been addressed before, falls within the scope of a statute and.
0: Can you name a single incident other than this one? where an agency has changed its mind as to what's criminal under a statute with, with the statute itself not changing uh, during the
3: course of its uh, change of interpretation? Well, I mean, Your Honor, I'd have to go back and look a little bit. I mean, I think in Abramsky, for example, the Supreme Court case, you know, one of the arguments that the, that the criminal defendant there made was that ATF had previously adopted a defendant-friendly interpretation of the statute and then subsequently had changed its mind. And that's actually the context in which the Supreme Court in Abramsky said, well, we don't, you know, we didn't, we're not going to defer to the government's view um, of that criminal statute. So, you know, th- there certainly are instances where, you know, a government law enforcement agency, you know, is dealing with conduct, is thinking about particular statutes or problems and, ha- and you know, its views sort of change over time. It's hard to give lots of concrete examples because they don't necessarily always result in litigation. But, you know, I I don't think it's odd to say that, let I me mean, let me put it this way. It would be extraordinarily odd to say that because the agency has made an error at time one in interpreting the statute that Congress wrote and has interpreted it too narrowly, that now going forward, the agency can't fix that mistake. And that, you know, what Congress wrote will now have to be read more narrowly than Congress intended Forever. I mean, I, I don't think that's ordinarily how we think statutory interpretation ought to work. We ordinarily think that we're trying to get to the right answer, and the fact that there was a mistake made along the way doesn't is, is an impediment to getting to the right answer.
0: How do we know whether it's a mistake? Couldn't ATF tomorrow decide it and made a mistake with its current interpretation and go back to the old one? Under, I mean, under your, I mean, is, is, isn't ATF entirely in, entitled to do
3: that under your theory? I mean, it's certainly always the case that ATF or any other, you know, entity could decide, well, you know, the statute means that, but we're not going to enforce it against individuals who, you know, behave in that way. You know, there's always sort of some room and, and there's always some room for questioning, you know, and, and, and evaluating interpretations. Again, I don't think that's particularly unusual. I mean, what we do have here at this point is a situation where you know, the so DC we just have to take ATF's
0: word for it that, that they've got the right interpretation
3: now of the statute. You don't have to take our word for it, Your Honor. We're asking you to you know engage in the same statutory analysis and and you know hopefully reach the same conclusion that ATF has. I mean, so I, I don't think anybody's asking you to take ATF's word for it. I mean, that's exactly what the DC Circuit just did in Guedes. You know, it, it looked at that. The
0: problem is your, your, your agency has taken two different interpretations of the same statute. And so how are we to determine whether the first one was the right one or the second one was the right one? It seems like people have made some pretty good arguments on both sides as to why each interpretation is correct. Uh, that seems to be driving us towards uh, an ambiguity here as acknowledged by the very agency
3: you're representing. You know, again, I, I think it's important to bear in mind that the particular mistake that ATF made with respect to the interpretation of the term automatically is not one that anyone now endorses, right? It's not one that, um, you know, the Bonk opinions or the panel opinion and gun owners endorsed. It's not one that the Fifth Circuit, any judge on the Fifth Circuit, as far as I could tell, just endorsed. Um, I mean, the, the Fifth Circuit there, in fact, didn't have a majority holding, uh, as to the interpretation of the statute. Um, so, you know, I, I think the particular error that the agency corrected, as um, I think one the court can take on its own terms, particularly given that what the rule spells out here, particularly with the t- respect to the term automatically, is really just charting, you know, well-traveled ground. I mean, the Seventh Circuit decision in Olufsen, uh, you know, addresses that in detail and the rule relies on it heavily. You know, I mean, even prior decisions from this court you know, with respect to some of these definitions. So if you look at, for example, this court's decision in Carter, I mean, there was a situation where the shooter to fire that particular gun, it didn't have a traditional trigger the way you might think of sort of a curved metal trigger. There was a bolt and you pulled back the bolt and you held it and you let it go. And when that happened, the bolt would sort of go forward, cause a shot, retreat, cause another shot, retreat, cause another shot. So the bolt keeps moving. But there was moving. nothing else that the, the, the shooter had to do other than do that single action of pulling the bolt. Is that correct? Right, Your Honor. But of course, the bolt keeps moving just like here. The trigger keeps moving after that initial shot. But uh, um, you have you
0: to know, keep, the, the shooter here has to keep the finger on the, on the
3: trigger, right? Well, they have to keep their finger in position to be hit by the, by the trigger as it comes forward each time. Right. And they if have they to move, maintain, if they, move,
0: if, they move, if they move, if the person moves their finger out from out the, of the area of the trigger, then the gun will stop shooting. Correct.
3: Right. In, in the same way, if you take your finger, right. off the trigger bolt of like case, a 16
0: in the, in the bolt case, they only had to do it once. And that was it. It just started shooting. Right. And you couldn't, couldn't stop it by, I mean, maybe you could, if
3: you grab the bolt, I don't know. Right. But I, I, all I'm saying, your honor is that as to, I mean, I think Carter is like the Akins Accelerator, a good example of why this sort of idea that the, the fact that the trigger keeps moving after the first function of the trigger is not dispositive of whether the weapon's a machine gun. I mean, Akins is a machine gun, even though the trigger keeps moving, keeps being bumped repeatedly after the first shot. And, you know, the weapon in Carter was a machine gun, even though the bolt, which was the trigger on that gun, kept moving at, for each shot. I mean, that's no different, you know, fundamentally from what's happening here. And then I think the separate question is whether the fact that the shooter has to apply some pressure to the gun to enable it to keep firing somehow makes it not a machine gun anymore. And of course, you have to apply pressure to any gun. To, uh, well, not any gun, but any you know sort of gun that most people think of as a machine gun. You know, many common machine guns. You have to hold the trigger down continuously to get it to keep firing. Now, is all you're doing
0: is arguing. Push, I'm sorry, we don't have much time left. Is the government arguing for Skidmore deference here?
3: Well, you know, we certainly hope that you'll take into account the agency's considered views. I mean, that's simply, you know, what Skidmore Deference talks about is, you know, giving respect to the expert views of the agency, and particularly an agency that has come to you and explained, look, we made a mistake before, here was the nature of our mistake, and here's how, you know, we think it should be fixed and the correct answer, and also taking into account, Your Honor, the agency's technical expertise. I mean, the agency, of course, you know, works with firearms, you know, all the time, sees these devices sees the huge range of other devices that, you know, individuals submit to try and circumvent Congress's, you know, ban on machine guns. And so, of course, we hope that the court will give you know, respect and weight to the agency's views, you know, insofar as it reflects. You Tell know, me this, thorough- why, why, so- do
2: you, why do you think the rule of lenity shouldn't apply here?
3: Well, again, Your Honor, you know, lenity only applies in, in sort of context of extreme, you know, what they call, what the court has called grievous ambiguity. Um, and, you know, so, and the court has explicitly said the fact that you know some ambiguity is not enough you know because every statute can be said to be ambiguous to some degree and those those things alone don't lend themselves to application of the rule of lenity we simply don't think an ambiguity of that type exists you know again i would point you to the dc circuit's recent decision in Guedes, which sort of goes into you know that exact point i see my time is up thank you thank you counsel
1: Mr. Harden. Uh, yes, uh, just really brief. I, I think most things have been covered. I, I realized that, you know, again, we, we've always argued that the definition of machine gun is, you know, clear and unambiguous, but if, if you take the government's position uh, with these inconsistent ATF rulings, I think it certainly would undercut their argument that the statute is unambiguous. Um, you know, there is, uh, I think, a Supreme court holding in the past, um, factually an apposite, but stands for the proposition that if you have a long, consistently held position of an administrative agency, and then at the end, there's a change, the change should be given less deference. And again, I'm, and I'm not invoking Chevron deference here. I'm using deference generically, but it should be given less deference to the long held, consistent view, because that goes to just, you know, uh, the the public being able to have notice and understand what the laws are and the pitfalls, especially when there are, um, you know, criminal sanctions that could be waiting for them with one misstep. Um, so I just wanted to to insert that. And other than that, I, I think we've covered all of our issues and I appreciate everyone's time today and, and attention to this matter.
0: Thank you, counsel. Uh, the clerk may adjourn the court.